You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him, with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing two hundred loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahrim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for Yahweh has told him to. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me, and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom Yahweh and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. 
And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is episode 766 of my show on November 26, 2023. It is a Sunday morning, and I'm looking out my window here in Greeley as the sun is coming up over snow-topped houses and yards and roads and trees and bushes, and uh, man... I really, really enjoy this time of year. I love that there is snow on the ground. I love that we started Christmas decorating yesterday. We have the trees up and not fully decked with ornaments and lights. There's a little bit left to do as far as that goes and other things that need to be placed and positioned around the house. But we will continue on with the Christmas decorating today, and that'll be fun. But last night, we watched our first Christmas movie of the season, of the 2023 Christmas season, and had some hot chocolate, had some home-baked cookies, and it was good. It was very pleasant. It was nice to do that. It was enjoyable. We had a good time with it. We'll talk about that movie, what that movie was, and some thoughts on it at the very end. I'll save that as a surprise. But for now, let me just say, I enjoy a good cup of coffee first thing in the morning, watching the sunrise through my office window and snow outside as Christmas approaches. Christmas gifts ordered, decorating, having begun, listening to some music, watching some Christmas movies. It's just the best time of the year. Not the only good time of the year, but it's just the best time of the year, in my opinion. In this episode, though, we will be talking a little bit about the current political situation here in the U.S. for Donald Trump and for people like Donald Trump, and also a little bit about how that relates to what we come to understand about human nature, about politics, about good, sound political theology in 2 Samuel chapter 16. We'll also delve into the topic of concubinage. What is a concubine? And how is a concubine different from a wife historically and also biblically? We'll be talking about, as I said, the first Christmas movie of the season that we watched in my house And all of that will be better served if we first talk about the passage that I just read for you in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 16, still more of the unfolding of the consequences that Nathan the prophet told 
David would result from what David did with Bathsheba. To quickly recap, David was on the roof of his house, sitting on his couch, lying on his couch. He had stayed back while all of the rest of the men of Israel, led by Joab, went to fight against the Ammonites. David had sent them all off to war, and he stayed back. It doesn't say why, but he did stay back. And as he is loitering, as he's just chilling, taking a sabbatical or what have you, on his couch, he looks out and he sees a very beautiful woman bathing. And he starts asking his servants, because apparently he doesn't know who she is, he starts asking his servants, who is that woman? And they tell him, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now about that, it would seem as though before he knows who she is, he's already thinking he wants this woman. He sees her, he sees her bathing, he sees that she's very beautiful, he wants her, and all other things considered, all other things being equal, if she had not been Uriah's wife, presumably David would not have been in trouble for having sent for her and even adding her to his list of concubines. Presumably, the critical detail here was that she was already married to Uriah the Hittite, David's faithful servant, off to war with the rest of Israel. A sojourner, if he's a Hittite, but nevertheless, he was living in Israel. His wife here is left back in Jerusalem. He is off to fight. He is fighting with the men encamped in the field, fighting against the Ammonites. But David does not, at the moment he finds out this woman is married to Uriah, he does not stop. And so he sends for her and then he lies with her. And come to find out, weeks go by, she sends word, she's pregnant. David tries to cover up what he's done by having Uriah sent for. Uriah does not play along in going home like David tells him to. David tells him, go on home, wash up, relax, take it easy, enjoy a little break. Because why? Because David knows if Uriah goes home, he's going to be with his wife, and then people will not remember precisely when she became pregnant, how many months ago, maybe. They'll just assume this baby was born a little early, maybe, or what have you. They'll assume that the child is Uriah's and not David's. But when Uriah doesn't play along, David basically arranges for the murder of Uriah by the hand of the Ammonites, but nevertheless, it's David who sets it up. And the object, the goal, is for Uriah to be cut down by the enemy, to be dead, to be made dead. And this for the purpose of removing, apparently, the impediment that, well, you know, this is adultery. (laughs) If Uriah is alive when the thing happens, when the sexual relations happen, then it's adultery. And killing Uriah after the fact to cover it up, that doesn't change that it was adultery when David slept with Bathsheba and got her pregnant. But then 
that's the issue, right? The issue is that this is Uriah's wife, so it was adultery, and also that David had Uriah murdered. Well, he does, right? That happened. It is a material fact in the text that David got her pregnant, had Uriah killed when he couldn't cover it up other ways, more peaceful ways, and then David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, which apparently he would have done. Presumably, he would have just skipped right to that if she had not been married at the time. But here we are. Nathan comes to David and tells him a story about two men, one rich, one poor. You are the man, Nathan says to David. You are the rich man who took his poor neighbor's one single ewe lamb and slaughtered her for the guests passing through, the travelers stopping in. You are the man, and here is the judgment. The judgment is dissension is going to arise within your own household. This child that you and Bathsheba had together will die, and dissension will arise in your own house, and your own wives will be taken by other men under the sun in broad daylight for all to see. They will be taken and slept with for everybody to see. And not to get ahead of ourselves in the sequence chronologically in 2 Samuel chapter 16, but that's, as we'll see, when we look at this text, that's what happens. That's what did happen. But first things first, let's just approach each of these sections one by one in the order they're presented so that we don't get the timeline out of order. David and Ziba is the first heading here, verses one through four. Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who, if you'll remember, was the son of Jonathan, who was lame in both of his feet. Mephibosheth, David was kind to and did not eliminate because he was descended from Saul and would have a claim to the throne. Quite the opposite. David was very gracious to Mephibosheth and gave instructions for him to be protected and to be served and for him to receive everything that had belonged to the house of Saul, everything that would be inherited by virtue of his being the surviving heir. Here comes Ziba with food and donkeys for David and his household, David and his servants. Here is food here is wine. Here are donkeys. In other words, you guys are going to be hungry. And some of you are going to be a bit faint in the wilderness. You're going to be out there a while, probably. Here's some wine to refresh any of you who might grow weak in the wilderness. And then here are donkeys for your household to ride on. It would appear, it would seem as though a number of David's Wives are with him, and a number of his younger children by those wives are probably with him, in addition to members of his inner court, his mighty men, his servants, to help take care of everybody. And now they won't have to walk the whole way. So this is a very generous demonstration of aid to David and his family and his household and his administration in exile now, on the run, fugitives, so to speak. David asks Ziba, where is your master's son? And Ziba says, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel 
will give me back the kingdom of my father. The king says in reply, David says in reply to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Is that because Mephibosheth had a funny way of showing his gratitude for how gracious David had been to him at the first opportunity, siding with Absalom? Is it because David expects Absalom to kill Mephibosheth? It doesn't say. All we really know is all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Ziba says, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Which is to say that Ziba still recognizes David as king. Not being all caught up in this absurd notion that the descendants of Saul are going to be back on the throne. Mephibosheth has another thing coming if he thinks that's what Absalom is going to arrange for, that that's what Absalom is going to make happen, or that that's what Mephibosheth is going to be able to accomplish. He's kidding himself. He is an idiot. That is not what's going to happen. That is not how this is going to work. That's not how this is going to play out. If Mephibosheth tries to make that happen, Absalom will just kill him. Yeah, that's, you know, (laughs) the kind of person that Absalom is. He's no dummy. And he's going to say, oh, it's like that, huh? Kill him. And that'll be the end of that. So we might as well just, while we're here, while we're talking, I don't know when I'll get to talk to you again, we might as well just say all Mephibosheth's stuff is yours now. I think that's the reason. That's the most intuitive interpretation to me in any event. But then there's more, right? That first paragraph has to do with David relating to the steward of the household of Mephibosheth, steward over the property that had formerly belonged to the house of Saul. In the next section, verses 5 through 14, we see the introduction of another relative of Saul, a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He is really upset. <laughs> he is really uh, not being compassionate, not being kind, not being pleasant. He's being very ugly towards David and cursing him continually and just following along, throwing rocks, cursing. And he says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. This being a reference, we would say, not just to war and fighting in a general sense, but specifically the blood of Uriah is what's coming to mind for David. If you're in David's shoes here, if you're in David's sandals, you are cursed. And now your evil is on you. These are the consequences. This is a reminder, it seems to David, of what Nathan had told David was going to happen as a result of the business with Uriah. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, offers to go and cut this guy's head off, cut off Shimei's head to shut him up. Who is this dead dog? Who does he think he is? Let me go over and take off his head. David, to his credit, says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Which is to say, 
In David's mind, rightly or wrongly, God has put Shimei up to this. God has brought David and these circumstances and these people to this place, both by actively stirring some of this up, perhaps, and by just having withdrawn a blessing and protection that otherwise would have kept this sort of thing from happening sooner. And so to David's credit, he just endures it. He just takes it like a man. Now, everybody suffers as a result of this, and they're very tired by the time they get to the Jordan. It says they arrived weary at the Jordan, but then it says they refreshed themselves or he refreshed himself there. So that's that, right? It lasted for a time, but then David is hopeful still, and that's important. He knows that he had this coming, and he is going to trust himself to God's justice because he wants to trust himself also to God's mercy. If this is what God has decided to do to David, David says, I earned this. I deserve this. Maybe, maybe Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me, and Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David's trying to think past this judgment. And remember, that was another thing that Nathan told David, was that God will not count your sins against you. What? in relation to David's relationship with God, but then the consequences are still something David's going to have to just endure. He's going to have to suffer. And so now he is. And so he's resigned himself to suffering the consequences of his sin, of his folly. But he hopes that God will be merciful. And at some point, God will bless him just like God is punishing him right now. God is disciplining David right now for all to see. And oh, by the way, that's significant too for our sake, for the sake of the contemporaries who are just on the periphery here. It's significant that they would see these negative consequences. It's not just David being disciplined. It's also everybody else who sees this sort of a thing, these events following the cause and effect relationships between sin and folly and this sort of disorder, this sort of upheaval and suffering. It's important that everybody would see that and be put on notice. Don't do that sort of a thing. Don't act that way. Don't do what David did that led to this. Isn't this awful? Yeah, that's what sin does. Do what is good in the sight of God, not just whatever's right in your own eyes. You see a very beautiful woman. Yeah, it's great that she's very beautiful. Wonderful. Oh, what's that? She's married? Yeah, she's not yours, right? It's very good that she's very beautiful for her husband, not for you, not yours. Congratulate her husband and move on. (laughs) Go find something else to do. Go check on your many wives and your concubines and maybe go join Uriah fighting against the Ammonites. Do something else. Do something more productive with your time. Change your focus. But this is what it is. Those are all lessons for the future. Next time you're in a situation like this, Maybe think a little more carefully about what you do. Think differently. Remember what God has said is good, what will be blessed. Remember that. But for now, here are the consequences. And in verses 15 through 23, the last section of this chapter, it says, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Now this is curious too because Ahithophel is somebody that David is clearly concerned about the counsel of. And we know that 
from the previous chapter, where from verses 32 to 37, as Hushai, the archite, is coming out to join David's retinue, leaving Jerusalem, fleeing Jerusalem before Absalom gets there, David says, stay, return to the city, say to Absalom, I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Report everything that you hear to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. And that's how I'll find out what's going on. That's how I'll stay informed about what's going on in Jerusalem with Absalom. But verse 20 of chapter 16, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. Now, I don't need to spend a lot of time on this. It's pretty self-evident. It's pretty clear what's being described, what happened. Absalom takes Ahithophel's counsel here and sets up a tent on the roof where the concubines, the 10 who were left back to keep the house, are brought to him one after another, or maybe all at the same time, for all Israel to see Absalom having sex with them. And that's what's presented. That's what it says. That's what it means. When it says, go into your father's concubines, that's what's being described. Now, a short word about this. Not that I need to explain what it is that is described in the text, but rather I want to ask the difficult question of how our sensibilities, how our sensitivities, perhaps, for this sort of content, this sort of subject matter, are informed. On the one hand, I would say that obviously a steady diet of this sort of subject matter is not good for the soul. This is not good what Absalom is doing. The counsel of Ahithophel, while shrewd or cunning after a fashion, while very Machiavellian, perhaps sort of, but then not Really, because Machiavelli would say you pretend at virtue and Absalom is throwing out all pretense of virtue to say these are now Absalom's concubines. It was a different time. It was a different place. Apparently, David had taken Saul's concubines for himself after the death of Saul, after the death of Ishbosheth, after David had become king over all Israel. After David became king over all Israel, he inherited Saul's concubines, but then Saul was dead. And this presents a number of questions, a host of questions. Is Ahithophel's counsel here because all Israel is to see this and think to themselves, David is as good as dead? The king is dead. Long live the king. Absalom is the new king. 
Is this the beginning already of the unraveling of the legitimacy of Absalom in the minds of the men of Israel? It's not the end. It won't seem evil to a lot of these men in Israel just yet, but similar to how Saul was a very polarizing figure. He was at first exciting to Israel because they wanted a king like the nations around them. And then as he started to act very ruthlessly, say, for instance, against the priests and their families of Nob, after David was helped while fleeing the death squad of Saul's, Thereafter, you get hundreds of men going out to gather around David, bitter men, men who are deeply in debt, men who feel they have been treated unjustly under Saul's rule. So also, you have those kinds of men gathering around Absalom, but then What's the basis for supposing that they've been treated unjustly? And what does this signify? Well, it's an asserting of dominance. Just like if an older lion was driven away from his pride and an older lion would have a harem of lionesses, what would the younger, stronger, more dominant, ascendant lion who took over that pride do? Well, for one, he would kill all of the cubs who had been sired by the previous male lion. But then for another thing, he would assume the breeding rights over the lionesses. That's what lions would do. And, oh, by the way, again, for those who are opposed to the Bible and they say, oh, I just don't think that it's a good influence. I think... You know, if this is supposed to be a true accounting of God, God is not just. By contrast, what we hold to is materialism and secularism and humanism and Darwinian thinking about everything being explained by references to evolution and evolutionary processes. If you're of that mindset and you see this, it looks an awful lot like the law of the jungle. This is what lions would do, and Absalom is like the lion who has just driven off the older male who's perhaps past his prime. And on the one hand, you would say it's highly inappropriate that he is setting up a tent on the roof, bringing these concubines to himself one after another to go into them for all Israel to see, anybody who wants to look up there and see what he's up to, well, yep, that's what's happening. That's what he's doing. You would say that's wildly inappropriate, but then this is something that happens in typically milder forms, different ways of expressing it, but when there's a major regime change, something symbolic is done to demonstrate that there's a new sheriff in town. We're not going to be doing things in the way that they were done to this point. This is a revolution. 
That's what Absalom is seizing on in Ahithophel's counsel here. But it says at the last, verse 23, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. What does that mean? It means that Ahithophel was so shrewd, he was so cunning, he had such clever advice that you might as soon want to know what Ahithophel would advise in a certain situation as you would want to know what God had spoken through a prophet or one of the priests. And that was true not just for Absalom, that was true for David as well. David regarded him as very shrewd. And like I've said many times, David is not stupid. David is a very cunning man. He's a very cunning warrior. He's very perceptive. He keeps his head on a swivel. Great situational awareness, although he suppresses it and sometimes just bypasses the alarms, I think, with regards to family to try and cope. He just tries to ignore and avoid certain bad situations developing until he can't avoid them anymore, which is also a very human thing. It's a very typical thing. But Ahithophel, it's not being said. Ahithophel is giving godly counsel here. He's just giving counsel. He's giving shrewd counsel. And again, I say these kinds of passages are in here for very similar reasons to why Jesus says, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Fast forward to the New Testament and John the Baptist publicly rebuking Herod for having taken his brother's wife, Herod, and the woman he was living with as his wife. They had both been married to other people and they divorced their respective spouses. But then the issue was in part that Herodias was married to Herod's brother prior to getting a divorce and marrying Herod instead. That's what John was talking about when he said, put away your brother's wife. And it cost him his head. He was arrested, thrown in prison. Ultimately, the request, the favor that was asked was that he would be beheaded. And he was. Over this sort of what? Blatant impropriety, sexual immorality. The key operative word here is apparently whose are they? If David were actually, in fact, dead right now, then. That would be one thing, and they wouldn't be anybody's. And what's curious is, although you need to be careful about making arguments from silence, there's no condemnation of, criticism of, rebuke of David for having these concubines in the first place. It's just presented very matter of fact that he had accumulated wives and concubines for himself. These are described as his concubines, and then it's also presented important to note, as 
This is just what happened. In fact, the word from Yahweh, the word of Yahweh through Nathan to David, told David that this would happen. And so here it is, and it has happened. And that's not to say that it's God who has caused this to happen in the sense of tempting any man to evil. But then I'll admit, I will confess, this is a difficult passage. I think that's why a lot of us just avoid it. For one, we're squeamish about the subject matter that it's described as bluntly as it is. We're squeamish about that. We don't want to dwell on those sorts of things. But on the other hand, too, it's a difficult thing where you say, God allowed this to happen. God did not tempt Absalom to do what was evil. But then the language When Nathan tells David, you are the man, and also tells him what the judgment is going to be for having taken Uriah's wife and murdered Uriah, the language is God will take David's wives and give them to other men. Other men will take David's wives. I think, personally, this is as close as I come to being able to resolve the difficulties, which are definitely there. (laughs) If you're feeling as though there's a difficulty here, God does not tempt any man. He's not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt any man. But then this is clearly evil. Compare it to Pharaoh hardening his heart when Moses came saying, let my people go. Thus says the Lord God of Israel of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is God hardening Pharaoh's heart in a way that contradicts what James says about God not being tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody, nor does he tempt any man? No, I don't think there's any contradiction. There's only an apparent contradiction, which is not the same thing as a real contradiction. I think that the circumstances have been allowed, have been permitted in a way that is not accidental. It's not disorderly. It's not out of control. And just like God having put that tree with the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden and telling Adam not to eat of the fruit of that tree— did not mean that God was tempting Adam and Eve, as in God was not enticing them to do what was evil. He was just giving them the opportunity, and they took it. So also here, the obstacles have been cleared away, partly as a natural consequence of what David did with Uriah, and also in part because God is not protecting David from these kinds of consequences like he was. The Lord was with David, and now the Lord has withdrawn a measure of his protection. I think also similarly, the case of Job 
in the Old Testament. It's not God who is described as doing all these things to Job that are so unpleasant and awful, but rather it's Satan who's asking for permission to sift Job. And God gives permission to a point. So there's a limit to how much Satan is able to do to Job. Similarly, it would seem there's a limit to how much Absalom will be permitted to do in drawing away the hearts of the people of Israel, the men of Israel. Some men are going to see this and they're going to be like, wow, yeah, that's great. That's so funny. There's a new sheriff in town. Great. Wonderful. Other men are going to see this and they're going to be mortified like, ooh, this is not a thing that is done. This is not okay. But then the situation with Tamar and Amnon broke down some of the aversion to this sort of sin, this sexual immorality, the sin with Bathsheba and the murdering of Uriah broke down also before that. So it's not the end, right? It's not the end. And we will here in just a little bit, we will talk about what does it mean that these are David's concubines? I think that's an educational thing that we just need to deal with. We need to address it and talk about it. What are concubines in contrast to wives in scripture, in the Bible? It's important that we would not be embarrassed of God's word. It's also important that we wouldn't be careless as we approach the text. It's also important that we wouldn't just opt for, with these passages or any other, the interpretation of them, which is going to be most palatable to modern sensibilities. Be careful that however you interpret and understand the text, first and foremost in your mind is, I want to know what this is saying that would transform me by the renewing of my mind. First and foremost, I want to be transformed and not conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. So also, when I come to the text, if it's saying difficult, hard to understand, uncomfortable things, I want to not try to interpret the text in such a way as to conform it to the pattern of this world, which is to say the sensibilities, the values, the priorities of this world. Be careful about that. And you know what? I I think I've been fairly consistent. I try to be very consistent with this. I hope I am being consistent. If you don't know what to make of the text, then just say that. Just say, well, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that, and then still another option would be this other thing. And if that's as far as you've gotten, then just let that be as far as you've gotten. Don't bluff to a certainty you don't feel or you don't possess. Uh, Interestingly, Augustine, when he writes his commentary on Genesis, does this quite often, listing several possibilities for how a certain text or a certain verse could be interpreted and not necessarily telling you which one he prefers, sometimes telling you which one he prefers, but having a great measure of humility, I think, in saying, well, there are several possible interpretations and here's the weight for this and here's the evidence for that and here's the argument for the other. And it's okay to do that. Actually, I propose it would be better, it would be more beneficial for us to do that than for us to say, well, we're just going to avoid those passages because it's embarrassing. No, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it's like Edmund Burke once said on the subject of beauty and his book, his short book, A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful. That's quite a title, by the way, quite a mouthful. 
you know, it's like he said in that, he was endeavoring to write on the subject and explain what beauty is and how you can know what is beautiful versus what is sublime in contrast to what is sublime. What are the characteristics? What is objectively true? And how is truth distinct from beauty? How is goodness distinct from beauty? And yet both related to beauty, truth and goodness, both adjacent but distinct. He says, as he's introducing the subject, if he does not resolve once and for all the question of what beauty is and how you can know, then at least he hopes the reader and he himself will have more humility regarding the subject. And I think that's a good attitude. That's a good posture for us to have with regards to the biblical text in passages just like this one. That's a good goal to have. And it could be that you find yourself making better sense of certain passages than you otherwise would just for that fact alone that you're saying, I don't know. Because isn't that the prerequisite? Don't you have to say, I don't know and I don't understand in order to keep on searching for a better explanation, in order to seek out somebody who's going to have uh, a little more insight, in order to keep searching the scriptures so you can interpret scriptures with other scriptures? I think so. I think so. But enough about 2 Samuel chapter 16 for right now. In our next episode, we'll get into chapter 17. But for now, let's turn to a few current events items of a political nature. First up, consider a bit of reporting from Aaron Pan over at the Epoch Times from November 24th. Trump to meet Argentina president-elect Javier Millet in Buenos Aires. Quote, the president-elect received a call last night from the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, who congratulated him and pointed out his triumph by a wide margin in last Sunday's election had a great impact on a global scale. End quote. President Trump, skipping on down here, celebrated the win on his Truth Social on Tuesday saying, quote, congratulations to Javier Millet on a great race for president of Argentina. The whole world was watching. I am very proud of you. You will turn your country around and truly make Argentina great again. End quote. Now, this is a curious thing, in part because you would expect the actual sitting president of the United States to be saying this sort of a thing, not necessarily the former president first, but the current president, except that the current president, Joe Biden, is not expected to be especially enthusiastic about this. And why is that? Because the Democrat Party is beholden to, the radical left is beholden to socialists, and yes, even Marxists, even communists. And so it's an unhappy thing if you see socialism receding and being rejected in South America and you see somebody who's very friendly towards your primary political rival here in the U.S., in Donald Trump, it's two sides of the same coin. Why this is not a headline regarding Joe Biden congratulating the president of Argentina, Joe Biden flying to Buenos Aires to meet with Javier Millet. But again, as I've said before, as I have been saying in this episode with regards to 2 Samuel chapter 16, this you have to be willing to consider from the standpoint of shrewd men making 
shrewd moves, being cunning. Donald Trump is not stupid. Joe Biden is not stupid. The alignment or lack thereof should not be lost on us. And it's okay to comment. I think it's important for us to comment and to make note of who lines up with who with regards to this question of socialism. On the one hand, the more moderate Democrats will say, yeah, we're not for the socialism thing. But then on the other hand, the Democrat politicians are playing a very dangerous game with their own staff, their own activist organizations, their biggest donors at home and abroad, the biggest cheerleaders in the media. If they say, yeah, the rejection of socialism in Argentina, that's a good thing. That's a happy thing. What's more typical, and this may seem as though it goes without saying, but it doesn't go without saying, what's more typical is that the media coverage of somebody like Javier Malay will present him as dangerous so that anything he does, anything he says that would be embarrassing or could be cast in a sinister light, then can be said to be true of Republicans and especially Donald Trump, but not just Donald Trump. See, it's not just Donald Trump that the radical left is hostile towards, opposed to, at odds with. It's anybody who has a strong opposition to socialism, strong opposition to radical leftism, which is ascendant within the Democratic Party. Within the Democrat Party, socialism, radical leftism, even out-and-out Marxism is warmly received, and they will sit down at a table, the moderate Democrat, the socialist, the open Marxist, they will sit down and they will strategize. Hey, what do we do? And if it turns out that something very unethical, very immoral, very ungodly, very untrue would help them to achieve their larger shared vision of the good life for America and for the world, then that's what they'll do. And they will distribute the talking points and they'll say, okay, here's your script. Here's your script. Here's your script. And you're going to play this part and I'm going to play this part. And then he's going to come in and create an echo chamber over there so that we have it locked down before anybody really understands what's happened. And the people in the middle, especially very pleasant, very kind, very innocent, but then also all too often very naive Christians, when they hear the talk that's very blunt and very direct and very confrontational from the likes of a Javier Millet or a Donald Trump, and oh, by the way, who's presenting the rhetoric and who's spinning it and who's giving about nine-tenths commentary because they don't want you to hear the rest of the context. Surely, with all the time that the left in the mainstream media spends on the commentary, they could give a little bit more airtime to the broader context of the remarks, but they don't want to. They want to spin it. They want to frame it. They want the optics to be what? Actually, very similar to what Absalom wants as he's coming into Jerusalem. The king is dead. Long live the king. He's going to act in relation to his father's concubines on the rooftop for all Israel to see as though David is dead because he's as good as dead. That's the message that they're trying to suggest and imply to everybody's minds so that anybody who's still loyal to David will lose heart. Anybody who's interested in Absalom's reign 
being realized, being actualized, will be emboldened. And everybody in between will just be confused. And that's good enough. Everybody in between, you guys don't have to understand what's happening. Maybe it's all the better if you don't quite understand and you're just surprised. You're just scratching your head at the spectacle of it all. Well, if that game gets played right back, we have to be very careful that we're not being godless. Oh, they're going to be godless? We'll be godless right back. They're going to be evil? We're going to repay evil for evil. We'll overcome their evil with our evil. Be very careful that you heed the biblical admonition to overcome evil with good. Be wise as serpents. Yes, some have that figured out. And then the temptation is what? To become a serpent, to become so shrewd and so cynical that it's anything goes. And then that's a trap. If you actually were pursuing a restoration of better principles, have you now undermined those very self-same principles because you yourself got into the ends justifying the means as a mindset? And isn't that what the other side does? And if both sides are going to do that, well, then I guess there's no real choice. Then it's all the same, actually. If the ends justify the means, any means can be employed so long as the ends desired are realized, then I don't even know what we're fighting about, actually, except for who's going to get the title, who's going to have their vanity flattered. I hope that this is a good thing for Trump and Javier Millet to get together and chat. I hope it's a good thing for us. I hope this promotes our welfare and the welfare of the Argentinian people and everybody in between us. I hope that this will be blessed of God and that these two men will be wise and also that they will conduct themselves with integrity. I hope for that. I hope that they will promote what is good because that's what the governing authority that God institutes and establishes is supposed to do. Reward those who do what is good. Punish those who do what is evil is the other side of that though. And what sort of people are we? And that's the other question that we need to ask. Just like in the case of David, when he does what is evil and then God withdraws some of the blessing and the protection on David and allows nature to take its course, human nature to take its course, if we are the sort of people that David is being in the situation with Bathsheba, when she was still Uriah's wife, before she became David's wife, if we're that sort of a people, faithless, adulterous, idolatrous, proud, haughty, wise in our own eyes, then we should not expect good to come of this. We should expect it's just going to be more disappointment. But will we have clean hands? Will we confess our sins to God? If so, he says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a win-win, actually. Regardless what happens politically, regardless the outcome of Millet and Trump getting together or any other such combination of world leaders, candidates, actual presidents, former presidents, president-elects, presidential candidates, it's a win if God does not count our sin against us. If it's only true in the next life, well, then that's great. But then it's not only true in the next life. And that's just it, isn't it? For our next story, though, consider Virginia Cruda over at The Daily Wire, reporting November 22nd on Mika Brzezinski, warning Democrats they have to stop the invasion of the mini-Trumps. 
which presents a hilarious picture in my head. By the way, I have an active imagination, very visual, <laughs> of uh, a whole lot of Oompa Loompas. It's like an army of Oompa Loompas with Trump's face. We've got to stop the mini Trumps, she says. Morning Joe host Mika Brzezinski warned viewers on Wednesday that if Democrats were not successful in the upcoming 2024 election, the mini Trumps would be sure to continue in the same vein as former President Donald Trump. Brzezinski made the comments during a conversation with Molly Jongfast, during which they argued that Democrats needed to do a better job of attacking Trump and warning that if they didn't, Republicans would be able to control the narrative. Quote, there's always the issue. We don't want to go negative. We don't want to go ugly. When you're running against Donald Trump, just go real, Brzezinski said, as Mediaite reported, arguing that the smartest thing Democrats could do is just highlight the things that Trump himself has said and done. Quote, just use what material Donald Trump has provided, put in proper context, and give people information about what will be happening if he gets another term. I think that would be enough. And I think Democrats need to pound away at the dangers of Donald Trump using Donald Trump's own words against him and actions. Jong Fast agreed, saying that media had to be careful to cover everything and then work to counter everything Trump said on social media as well. Quote, when mainstream media does not cover a subject, there becomes a vacuum and Trump and his people get into social media and they spread stuff. And if there isn't a fair amount of debunking, you will see these lies go again and again and again, she claimed. And talk about spreading. You can also cover the mini-Trumps, Brzezinski replied, suggesting that Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican from North Carolina, and House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, fell into that category. Quote, they're all mini-Trumps, all Republicans caught in a cult that honestly, Republicans that you know in your life, you can't recognize these Republicans. This is all out there, and it's accurate information that can be used against him that Trump has amassed over the course of four to eight years, and he has given the Democrats on a silver platter, take it and run with it, end quote. Now, on this, it's important to recognize that this has always been the anxiety for Democrats. Ever since Trump came down the escalator announcing that he was running against Hillary Clinton, this has always been the concern. It was the concern during his running the first time around, during his first term as president. It's been the concern ever since he got out of office that he would embolden others to do likewise, which is to say, what? To undo the progressive welfare state, the globalist mortgaging of America's future in pursuit of world peace, the sacrificing on the altar of selfishness, vanity, our children, literally in the case of abortion, but then also economically, diplomatically, in terms of national security, in terms of national well-being, personal well-being, sacrificing our children on the altar to pagan gods in the form of climate change, in the form of socialism, in the form of social justice, in the form of world peace, or so they say. But then their vision of world peace really has more to do with the internal conflict that they feel when they see that somebody has more than somebody else. In particular, if they see that somebody has something that they don't have, they'll seize on income inequality. And never mind whether this person is rich and that person is poor because this person made wise choices and that person made foolish choices, or this person is rich and that person is poor because this person 
did good things and this other person did bad things, or this person is rich and that person is poor because this person is a liar and a cheat and a fraudster, and this person over here is their victim. The conflict internally that frames everything as oppressor versus oppressed needs no other evidence than that one person is doing better than another, one group of people is statistically doing better than another, financially, for instance, for example, or with regards to interactions with law enforcement, never mind the effect of culture on minority communities or foreign nations that don't like us, never mind the influence of culture on how we prioritize our time, our attention, how we relate to each other, how we administer justice, how we are merciful when we are going to extend forgiveness instead of punishment, never mind the influence of culture when it comes to the factors that contribute to poverty, criminality, human suffering, all they see is cultural effects that are conducive to the building and maintaining of wealth and prosperity and security. And if they see that the culture has a wide disparity, then they say that's proof that there's oppression and we need to dismantle this culture, re-engineer this society. And if the Republicans are saying, no, what you're saying is not true, what you're advocating is not good, that makes Republicans the bad guys. That makes Republicans the dangerous ones. Dangerous to what? The vision of the good life held in common by those on the left, who ultimately, if you trace it back, secularized their gospel. And this is where a lot of people in the middle get very confused. And they say, well, there's a liberal social gospel Liberation theology, that's bad. We don't want that. But then, you know, conservatives who say that the Bible means you should vote Republican or you should want lower taxes or you want a smaller government, you know, those conservatives, they might be just as bad in the opposite direction. Here's the question. What does God's word say? And is that our standard? If Mike Johnson says the Bible is my worldview, that's my aspiration. I want to be, of course, tolerant and I'm not imposing my Christian faith on anybody, but I'm going to act according to it based on what the Bible says is good. That informs my ethics. What the Bible says is true. That informs my honesty. If I'm asked the question, what do I believe about this or that, or about human nature, for instance, especially, well, then the Bible informs that. He says such a thing, and you've been conditioned, you've been taught by our media and by our public education system to regard that as the imposition of morality, that as being tyrannical, that as being dangerous, that Mike Johnson would say such a thing, which is to say that when they put Mike Johnson and Tommy Tuberville and Donald Trump all in the same category and they say anybody who's like Trump in opposing and standing firm against what the radical left is pushing, they're all the same, then I think that gives away what their initial original beef with Trump was in the first place. We've just got to stop him. We've just got to eliminate him, one of the Democrats recently said in an interview on the corporate news media. And then the next day he backtracked because there was a big hubbub about the word eliminate. I didn't mean that I'm calling for violence against him. It was a poor choice of words. Yeah, but you said eliminate because actually that's the emotion, right? The emotional content is better carried by the word eliminate because you guys hate him. And you hate his supporters. 
And this is going to a very, very dangerous place when all you need to know is that there is a coalition of people who are lining up on the Republican side of the spectrum in this country who say no to you. And if they say no means no, and they're not willing to compromise anymore because we've been doing that for decades, and where has it gotten us? Our country is almost bankrupt. The interest on the national debt is just about to exceed what is spent on maintaining our military. Military recruitment is down. We have to import a huge number of immigrants from Latin America and from all over the world in order to not shrink by a third by the end of this century. How is that working out for us? How is it working out for us that so many young people are abusing drugs and alcohol? They're alone and they're lonely and they can't buy a house and they can't buy a vehicle and they can't afford to get married and have kids like their parents and their grandparents' generation was able to at this point in their life. What's really dangerous is us continuing on with compromising with the radical left. You give them a cookie and they're going to come back tomorrow and ask for a glass of milk. And Alinsky says, this is exactly what you do. And we should know that. And we would know that. And we would understand it better. We would be more truly wise about these things, understanding about these things, if we read passages like I read at the top of this episode. Passages like 2 Samuel chapter 16. Make no mistake, if you look at 2 Samuel 16 and you see only Absalom gratifying his carnal desires with his father's concubines on the rooftop and you think this is about sex, no, it's not about sex. You know what that's about? It's about power. It's about asserting dominance, not just over his father, not just over these women. It's about asserting dominance over all Israel. And isn't it interesting that there are two mechanisms, there are two levers that Absalom is very comfortable pulling in order to get himself more power. One is violence, the other is sex. And what does the radical left in our country use? to confuse us, to shock and awe us into letting them just take whatever they want. They use sex and they use violence. Sex with regards to gender theory, LGBTQ pride parades, even trying to take over the Thanksgiving Day Parade, the Macy's Day Parade, with the promotion of drag queens, flamboyantly gay men, and then what? Antifa and Black Lives Matter riots. I saw something on Instagram from, I think it was Honest Youth Pastor. It was a screenshot of an article that had recently been published at the Gospel Coalition, written by an anonymous author titled, I love my transgendered child, but I love Jesus more. And I was the first one to comment on it. I just happened to refresh my feed and check it out right after it had been posted. And I asked the question, why is this published anonymously? Why is the author anonymous? And most of the people who replied to my question said, because whoever the author is, is afraid of being doxxed, and they're afraid of themselves and their family getting death threats or possibly being endangered, somebody trying to carry out some act of evil against them and their household. And that is to say, what is it that the radical left is using in that case? They're using sex and violence two for one, 
we're going to use sex, and anybody who complains about it, anybody who criticizes it, anybody who objects, will know that they are a danger to this new regime, this new paradigm, and then we'll go after them. Maybe in some cases, we'll be able to find something in their tax returns or find something in their business filings or find something in the way of complaints from people in their past. You know, if we have to go back decades, so be it. Maybe we'll be able to do this through lawfare. But if we can't find anything in that regard, well, then we'll just sick the equivalent of brown shirts in our day on them. We'll just dox them and then we'll trust that the proper radical leftists in their neighborhood will be willing to do their duty and step up and take one for the team. If we were more acquainted with human nature in relation to 2 Samuel 16, for instance, this would not be so surprising. It wouldn't be so confusing. We wouldn't be so quick to make excuses for it or downplay it or dismiss those who say, hey, this is really concerning. This is really dangerous. Those who have been saying for years, this is really dangerous. This is headed to a very, very dangerous place. The trajectory of human nature from this point, when you track it, the last three landmarks, you track it, we're approaching at a high rate of speed, a target that is going to be very deadly, very dangerous, very destructive. A great many said, ah, within the church, within American mainstream evangelical Christianity. They said, nah, let's not talk about that. We're focused on the gospel. (laughs) Are you like Jesus? Like the Jesus who called for repentance? He forgave sins, yes, but he also said, go and sin no more. And he also said, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, which takes courage. And you know that it takes courage when it says shortly after so many of those type of passages where Jesus was directly contradicting what the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees had told the public for some time. It says that they picked up stones to stone him, or they began to conspire how to kill him, how to put him to death. They kept sending their best and their brightest to try and assassinate his character, embarrass him, humiliate him in front of everybody who had heard him speak, who had come out to hear his teaching, had come out to be healed or have demons cast out, or again, have their sins forgiven. We're all focused on that gospel, that gospel that was very offensive. And even among the religious leaders of the day, they wouldn't hear of it. They wouldn't see it. They wanted to spin it. Hmm. Okay. If you say so. In other news, Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee has a post from November 25th All the major political betting odds makers have one person as the clear favorite to become the next president. Guess who it is? And it's Trump. And we won't spend much time on this because I'm running out of time and we need to move on to talking about concubines. Before we run out of time, we need to talk about what is concubinage. But briefly, Real Clear Politics, as they do, has collected and compiled betting odds data on Trump, Biden, Newsom, Haley, Obama, Kennedy, DeSantis, Harris, Ramaswamy, some of the most popular, buzzworthy names being considered for 2024. We have Trump with the RCP average, 35.9, Biden at 27.9, Newsom coming in third at 11.9, Haley at 7.4, Obama at 4.1, Kennedy at 4.1, so dead even. DeSantis at 3.1, which is disappointing. 
to me because I really like DeSantis. I think he's the best pick. Harris at 2.6, <laughs> one-tenth of Biden because Kamala Harris is just awful, always round. Even if you agree with her, you've got to, you've got to admit she's awful. She's just bad. Even if I liked what her proposals and policies were, finally, Ramaswamy at 1.5. So Ramaswamy, Vivek Ramaswamy, young guy, about my age, 1.5. He's trailing by a long, long margin, everybody else. But Trump is leading. He's got the betting men saying, we think it's going to be Trump. Yeah, we think so. Vegas is not in the business of losing money, Harris Rigby says. As I said before, with the story about Trump flying to Buenos Aires to meet with Millet, president-elect of Argentina, if Trump is the nominee and if he is elected to another term in 2024, that's no guarantee that everything is going to be so much better in this country. It could be that it's a very ugly time to be an American. But what's going to make the most difference for us individually is going to be, what do we say about Christ? Not, will Trump get elected? Will he not get elected? That's important. Don't get me wrong. But what's even more important to whether four more years of Trump or any Republican is going to help this country to be prosperous, to be secure, to have peace is whether we have peace with God, first and foremost. If we don't have peace with God, we're not going to be able to have any semblance of peace. We're not even going to have a chance of having peace with each other. It'll be peace, peace, when there is no peace. That said, if we have peace with God, it's not necessarily a guarantee that we're going to have peace in this country anytime soon, because look at the factors, look at the dynamics. I think something very similar, writ large, reflecting the character of the people of this country, very similar to what is recorded in 2 Samuel regarding the fallout from David's sin against Uriah, sins against Uriah, taking his wife, getting her pregnant, then having Uriah murdered. The fallout from that, even once he had confessed and repented, the natural consequences of that sin, I think something very similar writ large is what is happening to America. And we should confess and we should repent. And still, those natural consequences, we're in the midst of them and they're going to run their course. And maybe if we don't repay evil for evil, if we don't resort to the same in return, in reply, but we are wise, you know, leave somebody back to keep you informed about what's going on, maybe we can love one another well and be promoting what is good, and we can weather this storm because what does Jesus say? The man who hears his words and lives by them is like the man who built his house on the rock. The storm came, the winds blew, the rain beat against that house, and it stood because it was built on the rock. Hear the words of Jesus and do them. That won't mean that there's not a storm. (laughs) I don't know if that's news, but it won't mean that there's no storm. It'll mean that your house doesn't collapse around your ears when the storm hits. And I would say the storm is here. And so it's time. That said, before we are out of time 
in this episode to talk about what is concubinage. Let's go over to Wikipedia and let's read the intro to the article on the subject. Concubinage is an interpersonal and sexual relationship between two people in which the couple does not want or cannot enter into a full marriage. Concubinage and marriage are often regarded as similar but mutually exclusive. Concubinage was a formal and institutionalized practice in China until the 20th century that upheld concubines' rights and obligations. A concubine could be freeborn or of slave origin, and her experience could vary tremendously according to her master's whim. During the Mongol conquests, both foreign royals and captured women were taken as concubines. Concubinage was also common in Meiji Japan as a status symbol and in Indian society where the intermingling of different social groups and religions was frowned upon and a taboo and concubinage could be practiced with women with whom marriage was considered undesirable. Many Middle Eastern societies used concubinage for reproduction the practice of a barren wife giving her husband a slave as a concubine is recorded in the Code of Hammurabi and the Bible, where Abraham takes Hagar as Pilagesh. The children of such relationships would be regarded as legitimate. Such concubinage was also widely practiced in the pre-modern Muslim world, and many of the rulers of the Abbasid Caliphate and the Ottoman Empire were born out of such relationships. Throughout Africa, from Egypt to South Africa, Slave concubinage resulted in racially mixed populations. The practice declined as a result of the abolition of slavery. In ancient Rome, the practice was formalized as concubinatus, a Latin term from which the English concubine is derived. It referred to any extramarital sexual relationship, most often that between a wealthy or politically powerful man and a woman of low social origins kept for sexual service. The marital status of the man was irrelevant, and the concubine's children did not receive an inheritance. After Christianization of Roman Empire, Christian emperors improved the status of the concubine by granting concubines and their children the sorts of property and inheritance rights usually reserved for wives. In European colonies and American slave plantations, single and married men entered into long-term sexual relationships with local women. In the Dutch East Indies, concubinage created mixed-race Indo-European communities. In the Judeo-Christian world, the term concubine has almost exclusively been applied to women, although a cohabiting male may also be called a concubine. In the 21st century, concubinage is used in some Western countries as a gender-neutral legal term to refer to cohabitation, including cohabitation between same-sex partners. All of that is to say... Even though we don't necessarily use the term in common vernacular, the common parlance, or at least I haven't heard it used, this is the proper term for when a man and a woman cohabit and they're sleeping together and not married. She's not married to him. She's not married to anybody, but they're practically, for all other intents and purposes, without having the marriage license, the wedding rings, the legal status, the official wedding ceremony where they exchange vows before God and man. This is what to call it. I think of a few relatives of mine who have cohabited outside of marriage, living together as though they are married, but not actually marrying. 
and I think of their talking about marriage, you know, and now they are married. The three that I'm thinking of, two of them cohabited before marriage and they related to each other as if they were man and wife before they were married. And what did we call them? We said, oh, they're boyfriend, girlfriend. Oh, they're living together? Yeah. We're still going to call them boyfriend, girlfriend. You know what a better, more historically consistent term would be? She's his concubine. That's what that is. The couple does not want or cannot enter into a full marriage. Not yet. It's typically they don't want to. Why don't they want to? Well, because she wants a big wedding, right? Because they want to try each other out first. He wants to try her out before he commits. This is one of those least to own arrangements. Personally, speaking personally, not to say, let's confuse my personal opinion for what God's word would say about this, but just speaking my own opinion, I have always shook my head at that because I think, you know what, why don't you just elope? If you're going to do that, why don't you just elope? Well, the reasons are numerous. For instance, a fear of commitment. For instance, and this gets talked about quite a lot on the internet, among the manosphere, men going their own way, men's rights uh, circles, among that online community, men who've been kicked to the side, who've been rejected, they're involuntary celibates, or they've had too many bad experiences. And so they say, you know what? I'm out. They look at the divorce laws. They look at no-fault divorce, and they look at how the divorce laws favor the woman, especially if there are children involved, especially if there's property involved, and disproportionately, wildly disproportionate. It's the women who divorce the men. And so a lot of men just say, I don't need that kind of trouble. If I don't commit, then a divorce court can't, if she decides she's done with me, she decides I'm working too many hours or I'm not doing fun things with her, you know, taking her out to exciting places like I did before. I don't want her being able to take me to divorce court and ruin my finances, ruin my life. If we have kids, I don't want her being able to just say, all right, these are my kids now and you don't get to see them except when I allow it. And so thus, therefore, there are fewer marriages among the younger generations. There are fewer children being born to the younger generations. There is more cohabitation, far, far more, far, far more. But then look at this article from Wikipedia talking about the Christianization of the Roman Empire, Christian emperors improving the status of the concubine. Why? Because Christianity was having an effect on their sensibilities and changing what was deemed appropriate, dignified, right before God, what was moral with regards to the treatment of women who otherwise they could have been lowborn and used, abused, discarded if they objected. What we see is that process almost in reverse, inverted. And we see it over the past several decades in direct inverse proportion to pushing out the Bible as the basis for our ethics, our worldview, what we believe is the nature of man and what is the responsibility and the telos, the purpose of man in relation to God, in relation to his fellow man, in relation to women, in relation to creation. As we see increased secularity, increased secularization of our culture, we also see more and more concubines. Also, interestingly, what was common in pre-Christian 
Rome, homosexuality, not just concubinage, but homosexuality, because you get always a relatively small portion of the populace who is especially good at making money, especially good at accumulating and preserving power. And it's the powerful, wealthy men who have the wherewithal to attract an outsized share of the women. Like David had more and more wives, more and more concubines as he rose in prominence and authority and wealth, well, so also. That happened in pre-Christian Roman times. It happens today. It's happened all over the world in every society. Just give them enough time. It might be radically egalitarian for a brief span of time, and then you find out that doesn't work because some men are especially good at making money, especially productive, especially inventive, especially creative, especially clever. And if they turn their cleverness to the business of getting authority, then also they attract an outsized share of the women. George Gilder writes about this in Men in Marriage, formerly titled, originally titled Sexual Suicide, but he writes about this, how in societies where you've seen concubinage, where you see fewer and fewer high-achieving men having access to more and more of the female population, you also see, therefore, more and more men who are excluded from the sexual marketplace, as he calls it. Increasingly, over generations, those men become less and less masculine, less and less confident to try and get reconnected with their own masculinity or somebody's masculinity. They turn to homosexuality. They prefer the company of other men because they don't want to be completely alone, completely isolated. And then you see a rise in homosexuality, even as you see fewer and fewer men having more and more women just for themselves. And by contrast, it's Christianity that teaches, it's Paul the Apostle writing scripture in the New Testament, teaching because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife. Every woman should have her own husband. I believe that the qualifications for overseers and deacons, excluding men who have more than one wife, says that the preference is you have a man who's married to one woman. That's the ideal But then also it does not rise to the level of saying a man who has multiple wives or a concubine, perhaps even possibly since concubines are in scripture and their presence in scripture is not presented as something that God condemns. But then on the other hand, we have this category of fornication. And so if you formalize the arrangement, maybe that makes the difference in the cultural context. I'm not quite sure. I don't fully understand. I'm just not satisfied. I'm not content with the fuzzy blanket condemnation that I think was an uncareful argument on the part of Christians who were caught flat-footed, having compromised and tried to maybe do apologetics, maybe preach the gospel they thought, evangelize feminists, trying to compromise with radical egalitarianism. They'd given too much away, almost everything away as to Biblical marriage, biblical masculinity, biblical femininity. What is the telos of man? What is the telos of women? How are these the same definitionally? How are they distinct? Because men and women are distinct categories of people. If you say that they're not, well, then next thing you know, you've got men saying, I identify as a woman. You've got women saying, I identify as a man. And then what's your argument? Well, then you get to the point where homosexuals want legal status. They want it to be called marriage. 
And you reach for an argument hastily and we say, okay, this is what we're going to go with. And then if anybody says, well, wait a second though, because we find David having all these wives and concubines. We have Solomon later having all these wives and concubines. What about their situations? And that conversation gets impossible. (laughs) It becomes impossible to have. But concubinage, we don't call it that. And yet I wonder if it wouldn't be better for us to say, not to be mean, not to be ugly about it, not to be rude, hateful, but just to be honest. That's what it is. When a young man has his girlfriend move in with him and they live together and then she gets pregnant and they're posting pictures all over social media of the child, a beautiful child. I'm glad that they kept the child and they're having this child. Is a blessing from God that there's life, there's new life. Maybe it would be good to congratulate them on the birth of their child, but then also say, yeah, you're his concubine. Why don't you guys just get married already? Well, I want to lose the baby weight, I've heard. Mm, Okay, well, then I guess you're a concubine in the meantime. Well, no, no, how dare you? But that's historically, that's what it would be called. That's what it was. That's what it always has been. You're not just some random lady. You would take umbrage. We'll put it this way. You would take umbrage if all of a sudden you found out he was going out with other women. So you perceive some level of commitment. We need a term. You're not just boyfriend, girlfriend. What is that, right? We need a historically appropriate term that allows us to survey and draw meaningful conclusions from previous periods in history, other places in the world, and the term is concubine. Boyfriend, girlfriend, not cutting it, I don't think especially as common as this has become. In closing, though, as uncomfortable as this might be for some people, it's in the biblical text. And I think just like you have these texts being translated into English, and all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Nobody with a straight face can deny that this is scripture, what we read at the top of the episode, 2 Samuel 16, and all other such chapters in First and Second Samuel, nobody can, who's a conservative Christian, say that's not scripture or we shouldn't read that. But then we have to ask the question of why is this in here if we're not supposed to draw meaningful conclusions to our present day as we understand ourselves and the world we live in and the people around us and the situations that come up, the advice we're asked to give, for instance, the affirmation we're asked to give, for instance, especially. It's always affirmation that people want, but then we should not affirm everything. And even if we are saying, well, I would not approve of this or that, we should have separate categories for, I would not approve of that because God says it's a sin. Be ready with book, chapter, verse where it says that is a sin. Or on the other hand, I would not approve of that. I do not approve of that because it's unwise, because it's less than the ideal. And how do I know what the ideal is? Well, because of all these things. Just like it's good that the Hebrew has been translated into English for us many times, and the translators still want to improve their translating, especially as our language changes over time, the English language, what words are common, well understood, they give us updated translations. Just like it's good for us to translate from Hebrew into English or from Greek into English, it's good for us to translate concepts and to understand that that is the equivalent of this in our day. So that when that is shown warts and all in the biblical text, 
we have more confidence being wise and being upstanding, being wise as serpents, harmless as doves in our own lives. That's what it means that the man of God would be complete, equipped for every good work. So in closing, as bad as it is what Absalom does, the same sort of a thing is done. And for proof, just turn on the TV, just go to the movie theater, just fire up the internet, navigate your way around the internet for five minutes, and you will find people using sex and violence to try and get or solidify or retain political power and economic wherewithal. When you understand how sex and violence are used as these two levers to embolden those who are on your side, to demoralize those who are opposed to you, and to confuse everybody, even just to distract everybody in between while you march on the Capitol, while you set up shop on the roof of the palace. When you see those sorts of things playing out in our day, in order to not be ensnared or ignorant, it's helpful for us to translate the concepts. And I think this is the best way to do it, to say these were women who were low-born, lower status, but yes, David utilized them to have children or to satisfy himself or to increase his own status. They were given to him by wealthy, influential men in the country and in surrounding nations to try and establish ties and friendly relations between their houses or their tribes or their nations and Israel, particularly, specifically, David as the head over all Israel, as the king over all Israel. Absalom comes in and he wants to assert dominance, and this is how he's advised by Ahithophel to do so. Just because it's presented in the text without condemnation, that does not mean that it's being presented as morally neutral. You know you have to interpret scripture with scripture in order to determine what is the mind of God on this. But as I said, we'll get into the next chapter in our next episode. We'll talk about chapter 17, but for now, I'm out of time. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.